Good afternoon. Um, my name is Phoebe Okoa. I was born and educated in Kenya, and I'm Professor of Public International Law at Queen Mary in the University of London. The title of my talk today is Protection of Natural Resources in Armed Conflict. Now, it, it has sometimes seemed a contradiction that international law should contain a distinct body of rules, one prohibiting recourse to force, and an entirely separate body of rules governing the conduct of hostilities. Yet this seeming anomaly is in fact perfectly understandable. For the prohibition of force in Article 2.4 in the Charter of the United Nations has not eliminated interstate conflict or prevented the proliferation of conflicts within states. In fact, two clear instances, use of force in self-defense, is provided for in Article 51 of the Charter of the United Nations, and force is also provided for when expressly authorized by the United Nations Security Council. They are also evolving, although controversial arguments, that use of force may be permissible beyond those situations to include situations where a civilian population is in fact facing a humanitarian catastrophe or even genocide. These exceptions involve a consideration of what rules, if any, apply in those situations where the enforceable content of the law on use of force has either failed to prevent war or has authorized the use of force in the limited circumstances outlined. The law of war, or the law governing the conduct of hostilities, it is worth repeating, is not concerned with the legality of recourse to force, but rather that hostility should be conducted humanely, ethically, and in a manner that safeguards the integrity of the environment and the natural resources of the territory. Now, the Hague Conventions of 1899 and 1904 had contained limited provisions against wanton destruction and pillage in war. These conventions, although hardly used to cited today, have not fallen into destitute and remain of relevance in appropriate cases and provide safeguards against the protection of natural resources of the environment. They are not ossified, and although in a historical context they are mainly concerned with the protection of property, today they can be used to provide protection against deliberate damage or sealing of environmental natural resources. The increased public sensitivity to the importance of human rights in the aftermath of the Second World War led to the development of a coherent body of law in the four Geneva Conventions for the Protection of Civilians and Civilian Objects. Much of that law was developed and effectively codified before the radical shift in the importance of environmental values that accompanied the 1972 Stockholm Conference on the Environment. That shift did not, however, result in a coherent framework for the protection of the environment in situations of armed conflict or an attempt to address the aggravation of issues of resource protection in the context of war. The conventions that emerged out of the Rio conference do not exhibit any particular sensitivity in the application to situations of armed conflict. The 1985 Vienna Convention on the Protection of the Ozone Layer, the 1982 Climate Change Convention and the 1992 Convention on Biological Diversity were not accompanied 
by any specific attempt to address the aggravation of environmental harm in situations of armed conflict. So natural resource, environmental protection, broadly construed, thus remained an afterthought, even when the opportunity arose to revise the Geneva Conventions in the two additional protocols in 1977. As a result, the protocol provisions on the protection of the environment in armed conflict are rudimentary, and there hardly any rules at all for the protection of natural resources in accordance with emerging standards of sustainability and precaution. A further limitation stems from the fact that the regulatory framework in the Geneva Convention is largely directed at interstate conflicts, a largely exceptional situation today, since most conflicts are within states and involve non-state groups. There is thus a mismatch between the regulatory focus of the law and the contemporary needs of the international community. Yet the absence of a developed body of rules should be a concern because armed conflict, whether in the form of civil war or interstate conflict, has a devastating impact on the environment and on natural resources of the territory. Military operations cause direct damage to ecosystems, air quality, and water supply. In other cases, they exacerbate environmental degradation through prolonged settlement of refugees. Refugees and internally displaced people are frequently settled in resource-scarce areas, substantially impacting on already fragile ecosystems. This can have and has continued to have serious consequences for biodiversity. For instance, the settlement of refugees in the aftermath of the Congo War in the area around Virunga National Park had a devastating impact on a unique ecosystem and led to a significant deforestation and loss of biodiversity. The protection of these unique ecosystems has invariably been entrusted to non-governmental organizations and civil society groups, but many of these are unable to carry out their functions in situations of war. The most spectacular example of war-related environmental harm in recent times is the deliberate setting of on fire of Kuwaiti oil wells by the Iraqi authorities during the 1991 Gulf War. It is estimated that the Iraqi military set on fire as many as 700 oil wells, extensively damaging 600 of them. The immediate environmental consequences were catastrophic, resulting in black rain that was felt across a number of countries. The ignited oil wells also extensively damaged desert oil and contaminated the water table. There was also substantial damage to the marine environment as a result of the discharge of crude oil into the Gulf Stream. Studies have also indicated the emergence of respiratory diseases that are most likely attributable to the toxic fumes released in the environment at the time of the conflict. Equally significant are the documented accounts of the hazardous substances released into the environment as a result of the aerial bombardments of oil installations during NATO's Kosovo campaign. This also resulted in the extensive contamination of the Danube, although the impact on aquatic life was reported to be insignificant. Of the most significant allegations, both in the context of Kosovo and the hostilities in Iraq, 
is the suggestion that NATO forces, in the case of Kosovo, and the US-led coalition in Iraq had used depleted uranium in their military operations. These allegations have persisted, notwithstanding the conclusion of a special committee that any damage caused by NATO's forces was collateral, unintended, and in all material respects, proportionate to the desired military outcome. Of particular significance also is the impact of war on the exploitation of natural resources, although this has received considerably limited attention in the literature when compared to the direct effect of military operations on the environment. One of the defining features of the many recent conflicts which have been on the agenda of the United Nations in the past three decades, especially those in Angola, Sierra Leone, Sudan, Liberia, and more recently in the Great Lakes region of Africa, is the centrality of illegal exploitation of natural resources in causing and sustaining these conflicts. These conflicts have all been financed, sustained, and exacerbated by illegally sourced minerals and other natural wealth of the territories affected. For instance, from 1989 until his formal indictment before the Special Court for Sierra Leone, Liberia's former president, Charles Taylor, had financed his rebellion by using revenue generated by the sale of natural resources. This included granting companies um, logging concessions, and in return, they supplied Charles Taylor with arms. Sierra Leone's rebel group, the Revolutionary United Front, also used slave labor to extract minerals in the areas under their control. It has been estimated that the Revolutionary United Front received annual sales of between US $25 million and US $125 million from diamond sales, which became the primary source of revenue for funding the insurgency. The exploitation of natural resources was also a key feature of the conflicts in Angola and the Democratic Republic of Congo. The situation in the Congo is particularly complicated because the de jure government, the elected government, foreign occupying forces, criminal networks, private companies, and rebel groups have all been extensively implicated in the illegal exploitation of Congolese natural resources at various stages of the prolonged conflict that has been running since 1996. The United Nations Group of Experts on Illegal Mining in the Democratic Republic of Congo in its 2010 report observed that army units were competing between themselves over the control of mineral resources and that this was a major factor in the continuation of the conflict. Indeed, history is replete with many other examples of war-related or natural resource damage. Um, much of it is documented. This includes, for instance, the use of Agent Orange during the Vietnam War, which caused persistent and long-term environmental damage. So I have outlined the various contexts in which the conduct of facilities impact on both the environment and on natural resources. What then of the law? To what extent has the problem received substantive treatment in contemporary international law? Now, even though the protection of the environment has lagged behind when compared to other areas of the conduct of hostility, such as protection of civilians, it would be inaccurate to speak of a lacuna, a complete gap in legal protection. In fact, it is possible to distill from the existing body of international law a number of rules of considerable relevance. 
I begin by looking at peacetime environmental treaties. I remarked at the beginning that the enforceable content of the law of armed conflict has largely been concerned with human rights, specifically protection of civilians in situations of war, but less so with the protection of the environment or natural resources. It is therefore worth asking whether peacetime environmental treaties fill this gap, a residual role as it were in providing a yardstick for evaluating belligerent conduct in situations of war as well. I remarked at the beginning that the enforceable content of the law of armed conflict has largely been concerned with human rights, specifically protection of civilians, civilian objects in situations of war, but less so with the protection of the environment or natural resources. It's therefore worth asking whether peacetime environmental treaties fill this gap, as it were play a residual role in providing a yardstick for evaluating belligerent conduct in situations of war. At a preliminary level, the answer must be in the affirmative. The International Law Commission, in the context of its project on the impact of war on treaties, after an extensive survey concluded that peacetime treaties in general continue to apply even in situations of war, but only to the extent that the application was compatible with the exigencies of war. The International Law Commission Rapporteur also regarded environmental treaties as those which by necessary implication, given their object and purpose, were intended to apply even during the operation of an armed conflict. But note the caveat mentioned only to the extent that the application is compatible with the exigencies of war. The caveat is significant because most war situations would in any event make it considerably difficult to comply with the requirements of environmental treaties in total. In the advisory opinion on the legality of nuclear weapons, the International Court of Justice had to consider the argument advanced by a number of non-nuclear states that the use of nuclear weapons was illegal and among the reasons advanced included because their use would cause untold damage to the environment in violation of the key environmental treaties on the protection of biodiversity and climate change, which had also been signed by the principal nuclear weapon states. The argument of these non-nuclear states brought to the fore a consideration of the extent to which peacetime treaties continue to govern the conduct of parties in wartime situations, or whether their behavior once hostilities broke out was restricted to the specific rules on the conduct of war, however rudimentary these were. Protection of the environment in armed conflict would thus be achieved by continuing the application of pre-existing environmental treaties and only to be displaced by the lex specialis of environmental law whenever relevant. The International Court of Justice did not reject the arguments put forward by the non-nuclear states in their entirety. It noted that environmental obligations were not intended to be obligations of total restraint, that their continued applicability were contingent on the possibility of compliance being compatible with the exigencies of war. In war, damage to the environment may be an inevitability, and destruction of natural resources may also be an, inev an inevitability. But in general, belligerent conduct would continue to be governed by the lex specialis of war. Specifically, the court noted that states must take environmental considerations into account when assessing what is necessary and proportionate in pursuit of military objectives. It further observed 
that the distraction not justified by military necessity or carried out wantonly is clearly contrary to existing international law. Yet the continuing application of peacetime treaties is not without its problems. For instance, what level of environmental damage, natural resource destruction, is acceptable in a military operation? How significant should the military advantage be to offset the assault on the environment? Do developed concepts of international environmental law, such as the precautionary principle, have any operating influence in deciding what is an acceptable level of harm in a military operation? Crucially, is there a distinct role for pre- and post-conflict environmental impact assessment as part of the balancing exercise on which the rule presumably rests? If environmental impact assessment is part of the operation of these rules, who has responsibility for carrying them out? Are they to be carried out objectively? And what compensation, if any, should be forthcoming in the event of environmental harm or wanton destruction of natural resources? The answer to all these questions is at the present stage of the development of international law in the negative. It's further evidence that claims of environmental protection remain on the periphery of the law on, of the law on armed conflict. The decision by the International Law Commission to place the topic of the protection of the environment on its agenda has resulted in substantial consolidation of disparate rules and a much welcome initiative in the progressive development of the law. It's not just peacetime environmental treaties that are worth taking into account or worth looking at. What about other non-binding instruments that may have some bearing? And I turn to this now. There are explicit references to environmental protection in the context of war in a number of non-binding instruments. For instance, Principle 26 of the 1972 UN Conference on the Human Environment states that man and his environment must be spared the effects of nuclear weapons and all means of mass destruction. It also enjoins states to strive to reach prompt agreement in the relevant organs on the elimination and complete destruction of such weapons. Protection of the environment is also provided for in form in the 1982 World Charter of Nature. It states that nature shall be secured against the degradation caused by warfare or other hostile activities. Specifically, that military activities damaging to nature are to be avoided. Principle 24 of the Rio Conference, after noting that there was an inherent conflict between sustainable development and warfare called on states to respect international law for the protection of the environment during armed conflict. However, these non-binding instruments do not envisage a specific program of enforcement, nor do they concern themselves with apportioning responsibility or redressing environmental harm. They are more a recognition of the protection of the environment from both legal and political perspective as an important matter that ought to be on the agenda of states rather than a prescription of what those states must do. So far, I have scattered around general instruments, peacetime environmental treaties, but what about the so-called use in bello, the law that specifically applies in the context of war? To what extent does it offer a protection of the environment as a lex specialis? Two provisions of Additional Protocol 1 
specifically concerns themselves with environmental damage in warfare. Article 35.3 of Additional Protocol 1 enjoins the parties to it not to employ methods or means of warfare which is intended or may be expected to cause widespread, long-term and severe damage to the natural environment. Article 55 of the same instrument amplifies this and provides that attacks against the natural environment by way of reprisals are prohibited. The restriction to harm that is widespread, long-term and severe is a significant constraint. And if the restrictions are intended to be cumulative, they will be inapplicable in most conflicts. An assessment of the severity and long-term nature may be very hard to calculate and may take a very long time. The law of armed conflict in this context, in this context is heavily biased in favor of belligerent freedom of action rather than protection of natural resources or the environment as such. Rudimentary as they are, the provision of the laws of war that have some bearing on the protection of the environment are in any event largely state-centered. They are mainly directed at imposing obligations on states in interstate conflicts, a type of conflict that is increasingly the exception rather than the rule. The majority of conflicts, including those on the agenda of the United Nations, are within states and between groups within states. It is also a significant limitation that they apply only to protect the territory of other belligerents, leaving states largely unconstrained in relation to what they do on their own territory. Many of the recent conflicts in Liberia, Sierra Leone, Yemen or Syria have only peripherally involved national armies subject to a command structure and would clearly fall outside the scheme of protection envisaged in these environmental treaties. It's also a significant limitation that the environmental provisions of Additional Protocol 1 are only binding on signatory states. And this is significant because although much of Additional Protocol 1 has customary law status, it is contested that the provisions on the environment are yet to acquire this status. The 1976 UN Convention on the Prohibition of Military or any other hostile use of environmental modification techniques was another milestone in the attempt to incorporate environmental values in the substantive law on war. The Convention, however, suffers from a number of significant limitations. The restriction of the Convention to the modification of the environment's natural processes as a technique of warfare has meant that it is largely irrelevant to most forms of environmental harm arising in the context of armed conflict. It remains the case that the Convention does not have customary law status and, crucially, is therefore only binding on signatory states. Now, additional Protocol 2 to the Geneva Conventions, also adopted in 1977, was specifically directed at internal armed conflicts within states. But crucially, it has no provisions that apply to the environment or to natural resources. In other words, Article 35.3 and Article 55 of Protocol 1 do not have counterparts in the civilian convention in additional Protocol 2. I want to turn now to the possibility of using the Security Council powers under Chapter 7 as a means of protecting the natural resources uh, in situations of armed conflict. And these have a particular relevance because they could conceivably apply to both interstate uh, conflicts, but also conflicts within state. Now, 
A further set of rules of considerable relevance here in the exploitation and use of natural resources emanate from Security Council powers under Chapter 7. In the exercise of these powers, the Security Council has taken a wide range of measures which, although directed at the maintenance of international peace and security, also play a secondary role of protecting and preserving natural resources in conflict zones. The powers can be directed at cooperation, state and non-state actors alike. The measures adopted are usually in the form of commodity sanctions, which are primarily directed at preventing trade in commodities that are identified as a primary source of revenue for warring parties. Pursuant to these Chapter 7 powers, the Council has imposed trade restrictions on corporations that were found to be complicit in the illegal trade in conflict minerals. On the whole, the range of commodities targeted has been restrictive and confined to ostentatious items such as diamonds and in some cases timber. The Security Council has also made wide use of expert panels whose reports on the linkages between natural resources and armed conflict have been widely used in the United Nations as a means of publicly condemning and bringing pressure to bear on those involved in illegal trade in conflict zones. The panel's potential used the panel's potential as instruments of remedial justice is however limited. These panels are not judicial bodies and their mandates preclude them from making conclusive determinations on questions of guilt or innocence. However, in some situations, the Security Council has expressly called on member states to implement its resolutions and adopt measures that would ensure that armed groups do not profit from trade in natural resources. I'm thinking here, for instance, of the United Nations Security Council Resolution 1952 of 2010. These Security Council resolutions have at times acted as the imprimatur for national initiatives, and two legislative initiatives have assumed a particular significance undertaken by the United States and the European Union. This, these instruments were adopted by the states in question, acting on their own, under national law, and in the case of the European Union, under the auspices of a regional instrument. So they derive their authority exclusively from domestic institutions, thus bypassing the normal multilateral processes that would normally engage affected states. But the intention in these legislations is to give effect to the resolutions of the Security Council. The first of this, the United States legislation in the Dodd-Frank Act was passed into law by the United States Congress as part of the reforms on financial regulation introduced in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis. Section 1502 of the Act introduced a provision specifically intended to stop armed companies from buying national resources from armed groups operating in the Democratic Republic of Congo and the adjoining countries. And in 2017, the European Union introduced a broadly similar legislative initiative with similar objectives, but with a much wider geographical reach. It is intended to stop armed groups from obtaining mineral resources, not just from the Democratic Republic of Congo, but from all regions that are deemed unstable or are affected by armed conflict. So both instruments are acts of domestic parliaments addressed primarily to commercial operators who are appropriately within the jurisdiction of the legislating states, and on the face of it, consistent with international law principles governing the jurisdiction of states. 
there are seen as necessary correctives to weaknesses inherent in international laws enforcement mechanisms. Moreover, since these instruments draw their inspiration from Security Council resolutions, they cannot be viewed as a jurisdictional overreach. But there are a number of criticisms that can be leveled at unilateral legislation of this kind, even if intended to implement a Security Council resolution. The strategies are coercive and taken unilaterally by the parliaments of the states in question, and therefore probably at odds with international law as a consent-based system, especially where unilateral measures are adopted without meaningful engagement with affected populations. Although directed at economic actors within the jurisdiction of acting states, they make demands on the administrative infrastructures of third states. The due diligence obligations imposed on American or European corporations by the two instruments mandate and are in fact dependent on the introduction of extensive governance reforms in the targeted states in the form of internal audit system and compliance certification processes, but without any meaningful consultation with the populations of the affected state. So in a sense, they partake the form of a legislative overreach. Now, apart from the Security Council, there are other voluntary guidelines that have been adopted and published by non-governmental bodies, which have a particular relevance and role in regulating conflict minerals. Regulating conflict minerals and other natural resources has been a central concern of intergovernmental organizations operating in the economic field. The increased public awareness, the importance of human rights and environmental values has made many economic organizations realize that unethical investment decisions have little purchase with consumers and it's not in the interest of the corporations that they that um, it's not in the interest of the corporations that they represent or in the interest of member states. The Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD, for instance, has published uh, due diligence for responsible supply chain of minerals from conflict-affected and high-risk areas. And this remains a leader in this field. Um, but other sectoral initiatives have also been adopted in relation to diamond trade, the Kimberley certification process, for instance, timber, tin, and gold. These regulatory initiatives have the distinct advantage of reaching out to all stakeholders and not just states by making it nearly impossible or trying to make it impossible for armed groups or rebels to trade in these resources. At the regional level, the Pact on Security, Stability and Development in the Great Lakes regions stands out as the first comprehensive instrument in a region that has been at the forefront of the trade in conflict minerals since the First Congo War in 1996. It obligates the parties to adopt a regional certification mechanism for the exploitation, monitoring, and verification of natural resources within the Great Lakes region. It's worth making a word of caution here, though, that none of these initiatives have resulted in hard obligations, and enforcement has so far remained patchy and largely discretionary. Moreover, Extraction of natural resources by unrepresentative governments, as opposed to rebel groups, has received far less attention, even though they give rise to principally the same concerns as those generated by rebel groups, especially in conflicts characterized by widespread human rights abuses on both sides. The binary distinction 
between legitimate and illegitimate sources of power make no sense in conflicts where both sides lack democratic legitimacy. A final set of rules of relevance to the protection of natural resources emanates from the principle of permanent sovereignty over natural resources. This concept, which was developed out of the political processes of decolonization, rests on the idea that the resources of the territory belong to the people, not their governments. It received explicit imprimatur endorsement in the two human rights covenants in 1966, the political covenant and the social and economic rights covenant. And it provides for broad stewardship of natural resources. These resources must be exploited and managed for the benefit of the populations, uh, not their governments. So governmental management of natural resources in peace or war may be challenged or invalidated for the simple reason that it was unsustainable or not for the benefit of the population. Permanent sovereignty may also provide a yardstick for annulling concession agreements in post-conflict settlements which were not deemed for the population, which were not deemed for the benefit of the population. And in fact, they have been used precisely in that context in relation to the annulment of some agreements in Liberia in the post-conflict political settlements. There is much work to be done on how restitution for natural resource or environmental damage can or should be incorporated in post-conflict peace agreements. The matter is on the agenda of the International Law Commission and we all await with much interest the Commission's conclusions on this important question. Thank you.